Welcome to Chronosphere Fiction. This is your Chronosphere pilot, Daniel French. And man, flying through this stuff is pretty crazy. Hold on tight and listen good, because I'm taking you through part two of three of Conceived in Liberty. Let's dive right into it. I love America. Folks. Scene really three, Aaron's room. Aaron sits at his desk, closely studying maps. The Kurt Gower show is playing at an audible volume, but the words are indecipherable. There's a knock at his door. He looks up. Come in. Into the room steps Noah, a bulging backpack in his hands. He shuts the door behind him. Hey. Hey. You got everything? You bet. Noah proceeds to Aaron's bed, upon which he places the backpack. As they speak, he opens it and begins unloading the contents. What did my mom say? What do you mean? When she answered the door. Uh, hi, nice to see you. Didn't she ask about what was in the backpack? No, she said she was happy you had some company. Good. Noah holds up two large jars of nails, nuts, bolts, etc. Found these in my dad's garage. Didn't you have to pay for it? I hope that's not all. Nope. Got five more jars. Enough shrapnel to- I don't know what you're talking about, Noah. What do you- Aaron calmly places a single finger against his lips, requesting discretion. Your mom's with Brent. You think she'll hear us? You never know who could be listening in. Listening in? Through phones, computers, anything. <laughs> You've been listening to too much of that fascist blowhard. I've been listening to just enough. Now it's no secret I'm a devoted listener. <laughs> That must be the hardest part of the whole thing, huh? Doing the right thing is never hard. If you say so. Don't know if I could keep up the act for so long. It's hardcore. Aaron stands and turns to Noah. It's necessary. Do you have the other stuff? Right here. From the backpack, Noah withdraws a couple packages of sizable fireworks. No trouble at the border? Of course not. Lead me on through. Noah hands a package to Aaron. The latter examines it. Great. Perfect. These will work. The other bits? In the mail, on the way. Hope they get here on time. They will. Aaron, fireworks in hand, returns to his desk. Could have bought them in stores or something. Easier to trace that way. I could have bought them for you, gone to different places. They'd be booting in your door the day after. It's all got to come back to me. Does it have to come back to you at all? Yes. And it will anyway. There's... No such thing as a clean break. There's always something. Might take him a few days, though. You'll be all right? I'll be fine. Noah takes a seat on Aaron's bed. Anything else you need from me? Not today. I'll call you when I've got everything ready. Let you know where to put them, when, everything you have to do. All right. You're brave for doing this, you know. Somebody's got to. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Howard Zinn, right? Kirk Gower. And that's one thing he's right about. Do you think one day they'll understand? The people? They'll never know why it happened. But the means are just those. It's the end that matters. Do you think it's really necessary to hit our own people to get it through? Think. When you see terrorism on TV, who do you feel for? The bomber? Or the bombed? 
It's the only thing that makes sense. He turns back to his work. You can go now. I'll, I'll call you when I need you. Noah stands and exits the room, patting Aaron on the shoulder on his way. Once he is gone, Aaron removes one of the fireworks from its packaging and stands. He opens it up and sprinkles a touch of black powder into the palm of his hand. Blackout. Act 3. Scene 1. The illustrious television studio at which the Darcy Hour is recorded. Kirk and Lana sit across from one another, having a cordial conversation, while the crew busily readies for the broadcast. And so, it was at that point I really knew I was cut out for a career in journalism. When I saw that poor kid getting beaten Jim just for his George W. shirt. I've always been one to speak up for the small, the powerless. I'm an empathetic person, so I can't see oppression and tyranny without doing something about it. It makes me mad. What did you do about the boy? Well, first I tried to break it up like any decent person would do. Of course, I was outnumbered up against a bunch of sixth graders, so I got my ass beat. But I got the teacher's attention. I also got a few good punches in there, too. You really are a born fighter, aren't you? Gotta be. It's cutthroat field. Cutthroat world. It is. I remember my very first international assignment was covering the war in Syria. It was equal parts exciting and terrifying. My second day there, I was being escorted to a rebel stronghold in the West, and the vehicle ahead of us in the convoy hit an IED. Nobody in it survived. And later that day, during the interviews, I had to make a concerted effort not to shake. Intense. Have you ever had the chance to cover a war? I'm covering one now, aren't I? <laughs> Sometimes it seems like it. And just you wait. Things in America, I find, have this tendency to get progressively crazier. People, too. Very true. Very true. Lana, we go live in two? Ready? Always ready. Good. Not planning on giving me a hard time, are you? She grins. I think you can handle yourself. Oh, I can. Not gonna hurt my feelings. Don't worry. I'll take it easy on you. Wouldn't want them calling me a sexist for being mean to a girl. Thanks, Kirk. Very gentlemanly of you. But I can handle myself, too. Sure. I don't know, you seemed pretty, uh, indignant when you reported on my coverage of the whole Porter scandal. Wasn't sure if I'd offended you or not. Well, the topic of that episode was the propagation of unsubstantiated claims in news media and their potential danger to the public. And you remember the riots over your misleading claim that he was forced to resign for political reasons. I wasn't the only one suggesting that might have been a possibility. They were protests, not riots. And don't forget that the evidence available at the time, the emails and Porter's own statements, pointed to a virtual coup in the House Intelligence Committee aimed at withholding the memo on... I get it. It's old news anyway. We're not here to talk about that. I'm glad, because I could always talk about the unsubstantiated claims from you and your network, all that stuff about... Guthrie communicating with the Saudis. Ten seconds, everyone. All right, this is it. Gower hastily adjusts his appearance. See you on the other side, Darcy. She extends her hand. He gives it a firm shake. Five, four, three, two. The live broadcast begins. Lana looks directly into one of the several cameras. Good evening. 
And thanks for joining us for this special episode of The Darcy Hour. We're joined tonight by controversial radio talk show host, Kirk Gower, a polarizing figure who, as you probably know, is increasingly in the public eye this year for his inflammatory method of reporting. Regardless of your political leanings, it's more than likely you've got a strong opinion, one way or the other, on Gower's loud, and some would argue violent brand of political commentary, which has prompted criticism for its dubious sources, cataclysmic predictions, and urgent calls to action. Tonight, we learn more about the man, his positions, and his convictions. Kirk, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Lana. There's no denying that we live in a deeply divided country. Absolutely. There's so much vitriol on both sides. It seems every time you flip on the TV that somewhere things have gotten completely out of hand between protesters and counter-protesters. Mm-hmm. Something like 12 deaths this month alone at political events, I believe. There are lots of people who say you're widening the political divide, feeding into that vitriol with your extreme language. Well, maybe you'd say that, but my listeners know that I want anything but civil discord. It's like Weimar Germany out there, where you've got paramilitary groups clashing in the streets. It's, it's not healthy at all for a democracy. That's another thing people take issue with, Kirk. Your rhetoric that draws an equivalence between contemporary America and any number of totalitarian states. Say, Nazi Germany. No, 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 no. I said Weimar Germany... Anyone knows this was the government that immediately preceded the Third Reich. But you have compared America to Nazi Germany, Kirk. We've got the quotes. You're misrepresenting what I said. I'm not comparing the two. I'm saying in many respects we're becoming more and more like such a society with the, the censorship, the violence, the corruption. You've talked about concentration camps. Just last Thursday, you warned Americans that camps were, quote, the next step after passage of the Rubin Bill. Do you really think that's helping? No, no, I said re-education camps. They're not the same thing. Besides, the American government has established concentration camps in the past. Maybe you forgot about the internment of innocent Japanese Americans during World War II, so it's not as far-fetched as you'd like people to believe. The point, Kirk, is that Americans of all persuasions are worried about the future of the country in record numbers, but your reporting reinforces the existing atmosphere of fear and distrust. And we know that fear, as well as hatred, can be dangerous. Well, the American people are right to be afraid. And it's not what I'm saying that makes them fear. It's what our government is doing in order to realize its oppressive, power-hungry agenda. I'm glad that you brought up that agenda. Can you speak to the conspiracy theories you've circulated regarding the death of Senator Rubin? It's not a conspiracy theory, Lana, just because the facts haven't all come out. I fear they never will because that would nullify the Senate's vote on the bill, wouldn't it? You, me, and everyone else know the Senate wasn't about to pass it before Reuben bit the dust. Then you think that someone in government ordered his death. I don't know for sure what happened, Lana, but I know that the gunman can't tell us his motives conveniently. The gunman, David Kroger had finished writing a white nationalist manifesto just days before the assassination, Kirk. And according to investigators, he had downloaded the show of yours 
in which you lambasted Senator Rubin as a, quote, putrid liberal fascist for drafting the bill and said, quote, something needs to be done about this traitor. I'm aware of those claims, Lana. Maybe you don't think it's fishy that that was the only episode of my show they found on his laptop, but Kroger's friends all said that they never saw him or heard him say anything that indicated any right-wing views. They were all shocked. What's truly dangerous is you blaming me right now for the senator's death. That isn't what I'm doing. I just want to make it clear to everyone. Sure, sure. When I ask questions about Ruben's death, his assassin, I'm a conspiracy theorist. But when you tie me to his assassin with some paltry circumstantial evidence, that's different, though. Let me ask you outright, for the record. You don't think that anything you said or did had anything to do with the assassination whatsoever? No, absolutely not. I have never called for violence of any kind. Hell, I could have told Kroger or anyone that an attack on him would have the opposite intended effect. Would have bolstered support for the bill, just like it did. And I wonder, if that was truly the intention behind the attack, whether it was organized by some institution in government or not. Do you know what a false flag is, Lana? Why don't you define it for us? You're probably dying to. It's an intentionally deceptive act aimed at scapegoating a certain entity, maybe a country or political party, thus stirring up hatred and justifying action as a response. In World War II, the Russians shelled a village of their own to blame Finland and go to war. Our own Department of Defense had a plan during the Cold War to fake the hijacking of planes, attacks on ships, even subversive guerrilla activity in America to justify an invasion of Cuba. And if somebody wanted to jam that bill through the Senate, they'd blow Rubin away and make it look like some right-wing extremist did it. Or perhaps it was simply a right-wing extremist. Maybe so. In which case, I guess it's time to censor all conservatives before they radicalize, huh? That's what you're saying? I don't think we should devolve into the same old talking points on the bill here. I think the American people have heard enough of that lately. So you're not even interested in having a discussion on the bill and what it'll mean for this country? No, I'm merely saying that people have been barraged with opinions on it all month. That's going to keep up. Most people have already made their judgments. That's exactly the problem. The media doesn't want people to know the implications of censorship. This upcoming vote is the most important congressional vote of the century. The result will decide what kind of country America will be. The importance of it, its substance, really can't be downplayed. I'm saying that I'm here to interview you. This isn't necessarily about the bill. I'd like to change gears here, if you don't mind. Not at all. Please do. You sell yourself as a family man on the air, an advocate of traditional conservative values. But it's come to light that you and your wife of 10 years separated a couple days ago. I'm... I'm sorry. Would you care to comment on that? Would I care to comment on that? I, I, I have no idea. What, what exactly is it that you think you Numerous publications have reported on this development, but you haven't made any public acknowledgement as of yet. If you'd like to, you're free to. Gower begins to squirm. Cynthia, Cynthia 
is in the midst of a nervous breakdown. She needed to take some breathing room, but that's not the business of you. You're a public figure, Kirk. And more than once, you've pointed to a dedication to personal openness stemming from your journalistic responsibilities. We reached out to Cynthia, Kirk, and she gave us a different version of events. So you're taking her word over mine. You want to talk about unsubstantiated claims? Kirk, she made some serious allegations, which I think we should discuss. She also told us she's in the process of filing for divorce. Gower is beginning to have a difficult time concealing his fury. You think you can bring this up on the air, talk about this? Well, you yourself certainly don't shy away from reporting, even commenting on personal matters. If I recall correctly, you once said on air that I was lying when I made allegations of harassment against Michael Sternbaum at this network, that I likely wanted the coverage. No, I don't think you were lying. I think he did do all that, but you liked it. <gasps> Excuse me? And you said he forced himself on you for all the coverage, the attention. How dare you? You don't talk about my family, you bitch. What's going to become of your children? Kirk jumps to his feet as if ready to pounce on her. There's obvious alarm in the ranks of the crew. Listen to me, you little cunt. You keep your shit-stained nose right the fuck out of my life. It's my fucking business. I should have known some fucking bimbo media whore like you would pull this fucking Jerry Springer gotcha shit on me. Unbelievable, little pissant. Fuming, he storms off the set and off stage, leaving everyone aghast, speechless. Blackout. <laughs> Scene two. Aaron's room. The young man sits at his desk, writing a letter by hand. The maps he had been working on have been pinned to the wall. As usual, the Kirk Gower show plays in the background. A knock at his door is heard. Aaron, some packages for you, sweetie. He doesn't look up. Come in. Aaron's mother enters the room, one of said packages in her arms. She sees that he's engaged. I'll just leave them here. There's a couple of... Thanks. She places the package on the floor next to the door. There are others just outside the door, which she proceeds to stack upon the first, one by one. There are four total. So what are they? Uh, they're, uh, pressure cookers. What do you need so many for? Planning on opening a restaurant? It's for a science project. I need the parts. Oh, that's nice to hear. I, I thought you were over-engineering for good. Not just uninspired. Until now. She notices the maps on the wall, but says nothing. I was just headed out. Brett's in his room. Okay, I'll keep an ear out. Thanks, I should be back by 10. Fine. She stands in the doorway for a moment, looking on her preoccupied son. You doing all right? Fine, Mom. Okay, haven't been seeing you a lot. Well, um, I'll see you later. Later. She withdraws, shutting the door behind her. There's a knock at the front door from elsewhere in the apartment. Aaron stops writing and listens closely. We hear from offstage Aaron's mother answering the door and exchanging indistinct words with whoever knocked. Shortly, the front door is shut, and there is yet another knock on Aaron's door. Yes? Can I come in? Aaron doesn't seem to recognize the voice. Yes. Into the room steps Hector. Aaron is moderately surprised to see him. Their conversation is somewhat awkward. Oh. Hi, Aaron. Uh, 
How you doing? Fine. I was in the neighborhood. Thought I'd stop by, see if you were around. Ah. Been a long time. Like, what, a year? Yeah, something like that. Not so easy to get in touch with you. You deleted your Facebook and you don't answer any phone calls or emails. Changed my number. I don't really use email anymore. Yeah, you kind of dropped off the face of the earth. Been pretty busy. You busy now? Uh, not really. What are you up to? Just writing my congressman. You should do it sometime. It's an important part of the democratic process. Yeah. Hector looks around the room. Gone kind of minimalistic, huh? Modest, I'd say. Hector notices the maps. What are these for? They're maps of the city. I see that, but what are they for? I'm keeping track of all the protests over that bill. It's like a study I'm doing. Ah, still all about social justice? Guess so. Just not in the same way. Isn't that that, what, Gower guy? The radio host? Uh-huh. You used to hate him. Used to. Aaron, man, is everything cool? What do you mean? You seem, I don't know, weird. Like, completely not yourself. And you blew me and everybody off for so long. Alex thought you had moved or something. We kind of just gave up after a while. I mean, it's all really weird, dude. Uh, <laughs> Aaron just shrugs. Do you, like, feel all right? Yeah, feel fine. I don't know why you're so concerned. Because you disappeared on us. And your mom said you barely ever go anywhere or have anybody over. Are you a shut-in now? Aaron calmly stands and faces Hector, eye to eye. I've got important things to do. You don't have anything else to say? I don't owe you an explanation. I thought we were friends. And you're not wrong. We were friends. Other things require my focus now. Things you don't understand. You, you don't understand great endeavors. Hector slowly shakes his head. You... You need help, man. You don't sound healthy. Aaron walks past Hector and shows him the door. I'm in control. What does that mean? There's nothing else to say, man. That's it? That's it. I'd appreciate it if he didn't come back. There is a brief silence. Aaron doesn't make eye contact with Hector. <sighs> sure, man. Bye. Hector exits the room. Aaron shuts the door. He stands there, pensive, as the front door is opened and shut. He slowly makes his way back to his seat at the desk. Eventually, he resumes his writing. Blackout. Scene 3. A bar in Washington, D.C. Dimly lit and a bit crowded. McPherson, unaccompanied, sits at the bar itself, his tie loose and his spirits high. He finishes off a glass of straight whiskey. On the TV mounted upon the wall in the corner of the room is the Darcy Hour. Steve's attention is drawn to the show. You don't talk about my family, you What's going to become of your children? Listen to me, you little You keep your shit-stained nose right the out of my life. It's my business. I should have known some bimbo media whore like you would The bartender passes McPherson. Excuse me, could you change the channel? Don't know how much more of this I can take. Yeah, no problem. The bartender goes and flips the channel to some sporting event. He then returns to McPherson. Need another? Well, 
I wouldn't say need. Say no more. He pours another for McPherson. You work on the hill, don't you? <laughs> what gave me away? For one, the flag on your lapel. Oh, of course. But you got the look. Unmistakable. The look? Oh yeah, I know the look. You'd be surprised by some of the folks we get in this place. Would I? Would you believe me if I told you that presidents have sat at this very bar? Mm, maybe after a couple more. I kid you not. Sitting presidents sitting right here. I personally served no less a personage than Bill Clinton. Ha! <laughs> Might have known he'd be the one. It was before all his Monica troubles. I just started working here and I pick up a phone call telling us the president was planning on stopping by. I'm sure it's a prank call, but I play along. Sure enough, that night, in he walks. Entourage of Secret Service guys and everything. I say, how you doing, Bill? Fine, he says. Been a long day. He orders his drink. We make a little small talk about football. He tips me a $100 bill and leaves. Quite a story. What did he order? Glad you asked. You can tell a lot about a man, I think, by what he drinks. He gets a mojito, just like Hemingway. It's a Cuban drink. Would have guessed mint julep. <laughs> so what can you tell about me from my drink? Hmm. I'd say a man drinking straight Jack is either celebrating something or desperately trying to forget. <laughs> Maybe both. Not right. Got the news this morning. Wife's at home expecting number one. I'll be damned. Next one's on the house. You're too kind. Uh, Lloyd. L Lloyd. Steve, by the way. Pleasure. You a rep? Do you mean representative or Republican? Both, I'm guessing. Both, in fact. First term. Ah, newbie. So how's the town treating you? You know what, Lloyd? Pretty damn well. I've got to say, it's a giving kind of town. Give and take. McPherson finishes his whiskey. I'll get you another. Much appreciated. I really think it's my kind of city, DC. This place values loyalty. And for the long haul? As long as they'll have me. A little loyalty can take you a long way. I know it. Already opening doors. Doing the career thing, though. It's a big commitment. I know. Oh, you will. You'll find out. I don't just mean the time and the money. Something about public service. It changes the way you approach others. Can't be loyal to everyone at once. That's the thing. You got the party, your constituents, colleagues, the guys that get ahead, the ones that really know how to play the game, know when to kiss up and when to throw a guy under the bus. Only trick is not getting thrown under there yourself. Mm. Take my word for it. DC can chew you up and spit you out faster than Hollywood if you're not careful. Not careful? Sure. Say the wrong thing in front of the wrong person. That's all it takes sometimes. Hell, sometimes even your past comes back to bite you on the ass. Hope you never recorded yourself bragging about all the cheerleaders you bonked or the queers you pounded in high school. Think I'm safe there. That's good. Let me tell you, once you're a public liability, all those helping hands go away. All those doors they open for you, slammed right in your face. Come on, Lloyd. Don't you have any faith in me? Faith is too often misplaced in DC. But I'm sure you'll do fine. Just one last word of advice. Lay it on me, Lloyd. Know what your soul's worth when they ask you for it. McPherson smiles, raises his glass to Lloyd, and takes another swig. The latter goes and attends to the other patrons at the bar. Soon enough, Scarlet enters and, noticing Steve, heads in his direction. Come here often? McPherson turns and sees Scarlet, 
A smile spreads across his face. By now, he's rather intoxicated. Don't get enough of me in the office, huh? I suppose I could put up with some more of you. Take a load off. She takes a seat next to him. First time here, actually. Barry's recommendation. My first time, too. <laughs> Fancy that. You sure you're not following me? Pretty sure. Well, I guess it must be fate then. I guess so. Lloyd hovers over to them. Found a friend, Steve? She found me. This fine young lady will have whatever she wants. Gin and tonic, please. Sure. Careful, Mr. McPherson. People might get the wrong idea about you and I. Ah, phooey. <laughs> We're co-workers. We ran into each other by pure chance. Besides, I won't tell if you don't. Can your bartender friend keep a secret? He sure can. Steve here's in government, you know. You could have me killed. <laughs> <laughs> so what brings you here this evening? Just thought I'd get out. I haven't had much time to take in Washington's nightlife. Plus, I have cause enough to celebrate. Is that so? That's right. I, um, probably shouldn't tell you this. <laughs> I definitely shouldn't tell you this. But I was told not long ago by somebody pretty important that after the big vote coming up, I might just be made chair of a brand new caucus by House leadership. Wow. Talk about a promotion. That, November's in the bag. I'm living large. So it would seem. Well, here's to your conquests and all the ones to come. Hey, you know, presidents have sat at this very bar. Oh, really? If you don't believe me, you can ask my bartender friend. He'll tell you all about it. I believe it. And who knows? Maybe there's a president sitting at this bar right now. <laughs> Ambitious. I prefer to think of myself as persevering. Tread lightly. You never know where ambition's going to take you. You certainly don't. Isn't that what makes it appealing? Absolutely. So what is it that brings you out here, hmm? Fate. Just like you said. Fate, huh? I just had dinner at this little Italian place a couple blocks over. Felt like taking a walk. The air feels nice tonight. As I stroll by this place, I feel drawn to it by some animal instinct. Isn't that weird? Unusual, maybe. Who are you dining with? Boyfriend? No, I uh, don't have one. Was just by myself. Ah, that's too bad. Surprising. Why's that? Oh, nothing. I just think a lovely young lady like yourself, you know, going places in the world, could more or less have her pick. Flattered, she smiles. Going places, you say? Well, look, I'm a team player. I can take my staff with me. Where I go, you go. Scarlet takes a long, seductive sip from her drink. That's very nice of you. It's the least I can do. It's you that's going to be going places. Well, I think so. What can I say? I've always liked to be on top. Good. I like that. Steve finishes off his drink and flags down Lloyd. Closing out my tab. You got it. Lloyd goes to collect his check. 
I'm pretty smashed. I think I'll be heading to my place. And where you go, I go, right? That's the idea. Uh, I'd love to talk politics someplace more private. Maybe there's some dictating you need to do. There sure is. Lloyd returns with a check, grinning. There you go. Have a fun night, Steve. McPherson gives him a wink. Lloyd leaves them once more. Steve takes his wallet from his pocket, removes a wad of bills, and places it on the bar. The honorable representative from California can lead the way. They leave the bar, Steve's hand on Scarlet's waist. Blackout. That winds up part two of three of Conceived in Liberty. Aaron is played by Will Gear. Aaron's mom is voice acted by Kathy Lieberman. Noah is played by J. Dean Garcia. Hector is Joey Ochoa. Kirk Gower is voice acted by Blake Benlin. Lana Darcy is played by Alexis Bird. Steve McPherson is played by Matthew Smith. Scarlet is voice acted by Caitlin Curtis. Lloyd the bartender is played by Harrison Derbyshire. Conceived in Liberty is written by Blake Benlin. Production and sound design are by myself, Daniel French, at Fishbonius Sound Design. Until then, keep your cosmos clean. <laughs> <laughs>